Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> oh, goodness. It's a pleasure to be with you guys this morning. Um, it was Renovation Church, at least for a few more weeks. Uh, <laughs> we had our, I guess, technically first real elder meeting this past week uh, after the vote, uh, in which case we have begun calling this the Beaver Creek Campus um, and uh, the Old North Dayton Campus. So. For a time, you get to be in a multi-site church, um, which we're not pleased to announce to you. Um, <laughs> we're excited for what's coming in the coming month, really, with, uh, with Refuge Church as we merge with Refuge City. Um, for our time in between, we're excited to continue, actually, through Peter. Uh, we'll be in Second Peter chapter 1 today. If you have your Bibles, please open there with me. title of this series, today's sermon, is The Genuine Article. The Genuine Article, the true, genuine gospel of grace. It should not sound too different from what we're used to hearing uh, in First Peter. However, uh, as I was cracking open my commentaries for this week, getting used to this new book and trying to parachute into a, a new book, uh, well, in the opening lines for the commentary said that Second Peter is often regarded as the ugly stepchild of the Bible. Um, so if you're one of those, I apologize for the comparison. Um, but <laughs> this book is relegated to that classic second tierness that most people bring to those kinds of things. And I don't think that it necessarily needs that. That being said, when we look at the historical treatment for this book, it is often relegated to the side, only used as proofs where convenient to certain arguments. What I think is sad about that is if you look at Second Peter and you compare it to its close neighbor in Jude, it looks like Second Peter, like well, Peter took Jude and added some stuff, expanded on it. If you look at the parallels between these two letters, it is astounding how similar they are in their structure and their word-for-word phrases, almost doing two books at once. But what's interesting about this particular letter is while it starts as a letter, it quickly transforms into a sermon, which seems appropriate for a pastor to do. He begins writing a letter uh, and then just starts preaching. That's basically what happens here in Peter. And what he's concerned about is primarily one thing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The true, genuine article, the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Before we begin today, let's pray together as we take a look at what this is going to be. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for your word over the ages. That this this letter here isn't up to our opinion, Father, but it is something that the church for 2,000 years has stood upon. It's been looked at critically. It's been looked at and, and to, to make sure that we have the true word from you, to make sure that we don't include things that don't belong. And Father, on one of the things that seems to ride on the edge, we can still stand with our brothers and sisters over 2,000 years, trusting that your word to us is good, trusting that when we look at this text, we can stand firmly. And so, Father, we thank you for the church and the fact that we stand on the shoulders of giants. 
And Father, ultimately, as we're going to see today, we stand on the work of your Son. And Father, help us understand what you have for us in this letter in ways that maybe it does not look like it pertains to our everyday. Father, your word is still living and active. And we certainly can see the truths of your words in our everyday. Father, I pray for our time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Think about fakes. If we're talking about the genuine article, that stands as opposed to something. And of course, that would be the not genuine article. Fakes. The fakes are sometimes funny. Uh, I think of a recent experiment that they did taking Payless shoes and opening a store on Beverly Hills, but rebranding it to Paylessy uh, so that it's French, because that matters. And uh, people going in there and just willing to pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars for these shoes, and they take this one lady. Now, I'm with you. I buy mine on sale at Meyer, so I don't have anything to gain from this argument, all right? They, they take this lady who's like, how much would you pay, be willing to pay for this shoe? We're, we're just testing the market before we roll these out. She said, oh, easily over a grand, easily. She says, this is actually a shoe from Payless Shoes. It's worth about $35. And her face, <laughs> her face, again, I'm with you. Her face says, and you let me touch this trash? That's, that's what she's saying, right? That's hilarious to me because I don't shop on Beverly Hills. So in some cases, fakes are funny. In other cases, fakes are a nuisance. Uh, and can be annoying. And we think about fake artists that make fools of collectors. Think about fake financiers that embezzle millions at the expense of honest investors. Fake scientists that inflate their own reputations by writing on the back of other people's hard research or their own celebrity. But in some areas of life, though, fakes are not just amusing or a nuisance, but they actually pose a serious threat. And there is, for example, the potential damage caused by religious fakes. Now, the obvious ones, those who are in it just for the money or the prestige and much of what we talked about being against at the end of First Peter a few weeks ago, those can be avoided usually without too much difficulty. They're relatively obvious. But harder to uncover, but much more destructive in the end, are the well-meaning but muddled individuals who pass on a mixture of easy platitudes, biblical-sounding phrases, and a view of life that is twisted out of any recognizable biblical shape. These Christian conmen are the reason that Peter wrote this letter. They not only prey on people's wallets or good nature, ultimately they can wreck our eternal destiny. And since a false gospel tells lies about God. And fakes lie at the heart of Peter's concern in this particular letter for us. He mentions false prophets and false teachers they turn out to be false disciples, teaching stories that they've made up. And it's an alarming prospect for us, for sure, because we might be tempted to think that these words apply to darker days than our own. But Peter's insistent, though, that there will be future tense. There will be false teachers among you in chapter 2, verse 1. And he's writing this letter to, in verse, chapter 3, verse 1, to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. He's alerting his readers to the ever-present danger of being fooled by or even becoming Christian fakes. That's, that's what's at stake here. It's not just being fooled by, but owning the foolishness, owning the lie. You take foolishness and say, that's valuable and I want it. Ultimately, what this is describing is similar to what Paul is talking about at the end of Romans chapter 1. 
And people know that what they do is wrong, but they not only do it themselves, but they give approval to others in doing it as well. And so today, we're only going to spend our time on verses 1 and 2. Next week, we're going to take care of the rest of 1, and then we'll move into uh, chapter 2 after that. How can we do that? I want to show you something I think is interesting. If you look at the, at the, the, the build-out of this first chapter, and you take verses 1 through 4, really, though we're going to spend the majority of our time on 1 and 2, 1 through 4, call that A. Verse 5 through 7, call that B. It kind of sits in a little bit more. Verse 8, call that C. Verse 9, we have then the inverse of that. So it's C2. Verse 10 through 11, call that B2. And then 12 through 15, call that A2. We have this parallelism that starts to develop. As we see an argument established at the top, and then given a proof, and then given an example, and the opposite example, then an echo of the proof, and then an echo of the argument. So when we're looking at that kind of parallelism, what's the most important thing to do? Probably understand the argument, the first argument. Because then we can very quickly explore how it's developed, and that's what we'll be doing next week. But in order for us to understand first what the argument is, we need to start at the top, verses 1 and 2. The first one, it says this, Simeon, Simon, Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. These first two verses follow a standard opening to the, an ancient letter. And as I am, and I'm sure you are, often tempted to kind of just blow through these sections. I want to help illustrate for you the value of them today. But I also think that it is foundational for helping us understand Peter's concern because it's really crystallized here in these first two verses. He wants us to ensure that the Christianity which we have received, believed, lived, and passed on to others is the genuine article and is not a substitute. And so Peter is going to take for us four areas that he isolates where we should check that we believe what we believe against what he believes, against what he knows is true. And those are where our gospel comes from, whether it's as good as the original, what difference it makes in real life, and the doctrine that it teaches. In other words, we're going to look at first, check our gospel's origin, then its quality, and thirdly, its results, and finally, its content. Don't worry about that. We're going to walk through those in just a second. So how do we avoid fake Christianity, being fake ourselves or listening to fakes and just adopting this foolishness and lie? We want to look at those four things. So the first one, know where our gospel came from. Know where our gospel came from. We want to check our gospel's origin. It first says, from Simon Peter, a servant and apostle. I, I want you to recognize, I don't know your background in the church. I don't know your experience of pastoral titles. Oftentimes, Matt 
myself and Greg go by the, the title elder. We refer to each other as elders, usually before we say pastor. Oftentimes when you are speaking to us, you'll call us Pastor Russ, Pastor Matt, Pastor Greg. Don't call me apostle. I don't know if you're aware of that. One, that doesn't fit. That doesn't fit with the presbyteros. That doesn't fit with the bishop. That doesn't fit with the elder, the pastor. I am not an apostle. I may bring the apostolic word to you. I'm allowed to do that. I'm supposed to do that. But I am not an apostle. I don't know your background if one of your pastors ever was called apostle, but that should not be. The apostolic office is important. It's incredibly important, and it's not something that you can be today. So beware of men and women who call themselves apostles. Peter is, is giving to these people who are believing something false credentials. He's saying, I'm, an, I'm a servant and an apostle. He's appealing to his authority there, an authority that very few men have. And from this authority comes what he is going to claim is true. Recognize first this, this severity with which he opens. It's really easy to take a passage like this, particularly the opening to a letter. We see it all the time with Paul. We see it all the time with Peter, James. We see these opening things. It's an appeal. It's an important appeal. If I want to talk to you, for instance, even not as a pastor, but just as a man, and talk about parenting, it's going to be pretty important that I say, I, as a father, have this experience. This is what I see. Listening to a podcast this past week of of three uh, woodworkers and uh, one of the questions that was written into them was, how do you think it's best uh, done to, to encourage woodworking among children? And they start sounding off and sounding off. And then the second one is like, well, you know, you and I don't have kids, so maybe we're not the best authority on this. Let's send it to the guy who's got kids. The third one. Not that they can't have an opinion or that's not even good, but the claim of authority of having experienced it carries weight. Now, when we're talking about parenting, that's a low-level priority, low-level threshold. When we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that threshold goes to the ceiling. It breaks the ceiling. And so then the, the authority that needs to come to carry and proclaim the truth of what this message is, it matters that it comes from an apostle. And so Peter leads with this for us to say, you know what? This isn't just a thing. This isn't just a thing that I add to my life. It's not just a hobby. We talked in our class this past week, uh, over the summer this past week, about how our Christianity can't just be our hobby. It's our marriage. It's our marriage to Jesus Christ. It's not just a thing. It's so much more than that. And so the weight that comes from this apostolic office needs to matter to us. When we read this, we should perk up and recognize the gravity of what's coming servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he said, I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger, apostolus, apostle, greater than the one who sent him. And so the reason for Peter's importance and authority today lies not in his intellect or his personality, but in the one who sent Peter to us as an apostle, the one of whom he is now a servant, Jesus Christ. So where did this gospel come from? Jesus Christ. This letter, 
from Jesus Christ. Peter is a messenger of the gospel, of the man Jesus Christ, of the God Jesus Christ. He's a messenger. And so where does your gospel come from? What do you mean? What other gospels are there? What are you believing? We're getting ready to talk about our belief and our faith. What are you believing that's not Jesus Christ? What are you hoping in that is not Jesus Christ? That's what I love about our DNA material, is that when we walk through that, you are forced to confront these things that we hold to. You can't call them just your personality. You can't just call them quirks. You can't call them phases. You can't call them whatever you want to. They are an idol. They are a gospel of which we cling to and worship that is not Jesus Christ. And it's painful to see that. But it's freeing. No longer in a nominal Christianity can you just call that a quirk of your personality. And what that is is abide in sin for your lifetime saying it's just part of who I am. Because who you are is supposed to die, and you're supposed to put on Christ. So when we talk about this gospel, we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is altogether different than what the majority of us walked in probably hoping in today. To know where it came from. Second, I want you to know whether it is as good as the original. We have to check its quality. Know whether it is as good as the original. He goes on to say, to those who have obtained a faith. To those who have obtained a faith. So I think a good question there is... um, Do you have faith? Are you one of the ones that has obtained a faith? If we're talking about our salvation, if we're talking about the gospel in which we believe, it's an important question to ask. Do you have faith? I like these lines from a song uh, by a beautiful eulogy called Devotion. Uh, and, And it's actually a kind of spoken word style one because it comes from a pastor preaching on faith. He says... What is authentic faith? The cultivation of an optimistic outlook on life with a kind of spirituality attached to it? A holy hoping for the best? Is this how you think of faith? Authentic faith is the confident assurance in events not yet seen. Faith is not a call to believe in things when common sense tells you not to. Faith is not a mindless stab in the dark. It's not a crossing of the fingers and hoping for the best. It's not a leap into apparent nothingness. It's a word that speaks of reasoned, careful, deliberate, intentional thought. Thought upon what? God and His promises. If you are absolutely gripped by the coming realities that have been promised to you by God, then how you live your life in the present will be radically different than if you did not possess that certainty. This is what faith is, my friends. Positive certainty expressed in action. We're going to be exploring the rest of that next week as we talk about the action. But for now, when we talk about faith, do you have faith? Have you obtained that? If you don't know how to define the faith, the answer is probably no. 
But if you can start to understand how it fits that, this confident assurance in events not yet seen, this thinking upon God and His promises, the fact that if you are absolutely gripped, if you have hold of the coming realities that have been promised to you by God, then how you live your life now will be radically different than if you did not have that faith. That's the test. Do you have this faith? To those who have obtained a faith, and he says this, of equal standing with others. Of equal standing with others. That, that, what does that mean? Are there different tiers and levels? Are there different grades of Christianity? Experiences? Do, do pastors get a, a different standing of faith? than others, than deacons, and than lay people? What does it mean? I think what's interesting about this is that talking about this idea of obtaining something, of having this, 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 this faith, this, this certainty of promises and how it changes our lives, now, remember that we cannot be apostles, right? Those men that walked with Jesus and witnessed these things with their own eyes. But Peter tells us that the sum nature and experience of our faith is the same as theirs. Did you catch that? That, that is incredible. It's not different tiers of faith. It's, it's not different, different amounts of blessing in that sense. It's not that. He's saying that we can have the same kind of faith of equal standing as apostles. Those men that walked with Jesus, that touched his hands, that felt his wound in his side, that saw the food multiplied, that saw the, the demons cast out, that saw the dead come to life, they saw it. Your faith in something that is unseen to you can be of the same standing as theirs. Other translations here use the word precious. It is so precious, Peter says, that the first generation, youngest Gentile Christian has received the same faith as this man that walked with Jesus. This is what we mean when we say that we're all on equal footing. That we're all on equal footing before the cross. This is what Peter means when he speaks after witnessing the miracle of Gentile Cornelius' faith and conversion in Acts 10, 34-35. So Peter opened his mouth. <laughs> that used to be a bad thing. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Have you obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. By the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Have you obtained this faith of equal standing of ours? How? Through what? By what? By what standard is your gospel top quality? Through what condition is your faith, your gospel, the genuine article? By righteousness. By, by righteousness. 
not yours, <laughs> not mine. That's the hard, the hard twist, the hard key here. He has one word to sum up everything so far. By, by righteousness. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is different than the way that Paul uses it. It's not the righteous declaration that God speaks over His people. Something that we would closely, closely line up with justification to, to justify as righteous. It's not that. He's using it differently here. It is the righteousness which God is in Himself. His character. His moral uprightness and His utter impartiality. That impartiality is important. That's, that's part of that aspect of us having the same faith as Peter and the apostles. Of us having the same faith as Gentiles to the Jews. The impartiality that matters when it comes to the righteousness and the holiness aspect. Because it certainly carries the ethical associations that we find given to it. You want to think holiness in the Old Testament? When we think of righteousness in this sense, it's the holiness that we've been talking about in 1 Peter. That we're called to pursue holiness together. But... This ethical association also have a, a promise on the faith. God is fair and impartial. We receive the same gospel as they did, as Peter did, but also an expectation over our own ethics, our own actions. But we obtain this faith through the righteousness of God and Jesus Christ. But since we've obtained it, it carries with it expectations. It has expectations over our own ethics and our own actions so when we're thinking about this genuine article if you want to know whether it's as good as the original check its quality is it centered on the holiness of god is your faith centered on the holiness the righteousness of who god is Sermons are an hour. I had to bring a refill. I don't know how you get through them. Onward. How do you know whether it's as good as the original? Is it centered on the holiness of God? Is it founded on who God and Jesus Christ are? Number three. You've got to know what difference it makes in real life. To know what difference it makes in real life. I want to check its results. Verse 2 says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace. Let's talk about those first. Grace and peace are characteristic of this gospel, this faith. If you want to know whether or not you have the genuine article, does it make a difference in your daily life? Or is this right now just your hobby? Grace and peace will be characteristics of your life. 
there's a nice meme going around right now that says, I don't know who needs to hear this, but, and they say something usually relatively truthful. I know who needs to hear this. If you are in our DNA groups and have, uh, have titled yourself a power idol, um, this is for you. Um, I love you. I work with one and am married to the other. Power idols. Grace. Grace. God is gracious, right? So I don't have to prove myself. Grace and peace are characteristic of the gospel. Grace means the generous heart of God who determines to treat sinful men and women as he lovingly wishes rather than as they actually deserve. If you are found in Jesus Christ, if you've been redeemed and bought by his blood, you can't prove yourself. God is going to treat you as he lovingly wishes rather than what you actually deserve. I know that's a hard thing to reconcile. But we still have to do the right things. Yeah, we'll talk about that. God is still gracious. You don't have to prove yourself. He is going to treat you as he lovingly wishes rather than as you actually deserve. Why? Because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So, particularly power idols, but but everyone. Why can't we do the same? Why do we have this, this feeling of injustice in us that says that I have to treat them as they deserve? They started it. They did it first. That's what we hear typically from children. We still feel that same thing. It is impossible, apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, to treat people as, they loving, as you lovingly wish rather than as they actually deserve. It is God the Father's sovereign good pleasure, totally unmerited by us, which raises us from the ash heap to a throne of glory. It's the servant-like manner of God the Son who became a man, lived, taught, died, rose again, and reigns for us. It's the humble work of God the Holy Spirit who equips us to love and serve Him now with His grace gifts. And who is the down payment for the day when we shall be changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ Himself. This grace reigns in the life of a believer. The gospel is grace. To the argument that Matt and I have, I think that goodness is the most important one. Here's a bone for him. Grace. (laughs) The gospel is grace. God's good pleasure to delight in people who do not deserve it. His good pleasure. That's good. (laughs) The immediate, listen, you want to know what difference it makes in real life? It's this. The immediate result of God's grace is that his rightful anger at our disobedience is appeased. And that we have peace, shalom, with him. Now ever since Adam and Eve were banished from Eden after their attempt at moral autonomy, humans and God have not been at peace. Indeed, they don't feel it now. That's why there's this great angst that something is wrong 
because they are not at peace with God. Jesus said that we have been in a state of barely disguised hostility. Paul says in Ephesians that we are enemies of God. Yet, the hope of peace with God runs through the Old Testament, and it was won by the cross as the risen Jesus demonstrated. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said what? Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, peace be with you. Now that becomes Peter's message in Acts. What I love about particularly the New Testament is that we can see Peter and Paul and other writers of the New Testament, their life throughout Acts. And that's been one of my favorite, and, and the Gospels. One of my favorite journeys with Peter in particular is that we get to see him through all the Gospels. Being the goober that opens his mouth when he shouldn't. To being this changed man that I talked about this last time that I got to preach. He's a different person as a result of the resurrection of Jesus. The restoration of him to, to Jesus at the end of John is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And we see him then walk into leading the church in Acts. The, the, the courage and boldness of this man coming out among the religious leaders. And his message in Acts is this, the message God sent to the people of Israel, the Old Testament, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. As a result of being reconciled to God by the death of Jesus on the cross, we have peace with God. And so for a, a comfort idol, myself, God is good, so I don't have to look elsewhere. I'm at peace. I'm at rest. By the grace of God, I am at rest. I am no longer in hostility with God. And what lie do I want to believe? That God's mad at me and I should go find goodness somewhere else. I treat my kids the way that I think God treats me. When, when, when they don't respond and do what they're supposed to do, I, I treat them with anger. Just as I believe that when I disobey God, he treats me with anger. That's a false gospel. That's a lie that I'm believing and living out. God is gracious to me. He treats me lovingly, even when I spit in his face. I have to live that out. I have to have grace to others. I'm at peace with him. It's all paid. He's not my enemy. I can be at peace with people. I can be at peace in my heart. I don't have to look elsewhere. And so we have peace with God. We also have peace with one another. Peter spoke these words to the Gentile Cornelius as the gospel was suddenly extended to those who were outside the racial Jewish fold. Peter and the other apostles then extended this, this greeting to all Christians, including us. For if we are Christians, the gospel is doing its work and God is recreating his people under his rule. Listen, if we slip away from the message of grace, we forfeit peace with God and face only his anger. What difference does the gospel make in real life? You should be at peace with God. But if you lose this message of grace, we lose peace, 
And then the only thing that we have left is God's anger. So the gospel is grace. The grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. This is going to be a big theme for us the next two weeks. This idea of knowledge. And Peter uses two words for knowledge, and it's important that we understand the difference here as we work through these. Gnosis is the more common use. You're probably familiar with that one. If you have done some Bible uh, and theological history or training, you might be familiar with the idea of Gnosticism. We've talked about that loosely over the years. So Gnosis, where Gnosticism comes from, is the more common use. And you want to think of Gnosis as information knowledge. Information knowledge. The kind of knowledge that we can add to or grow in by being better informed, in this particular case, about God and His Word. Now, we can have that kind of knowledge by understanding Bible passages, reading good books, being well taught. But we're talking about a specific use here, right? The, the difference that the gospel makes in real life. Because it's dangerously easy to be well-informed, to be a well-informed non-Christian who misses the key ingredient. And that's Peter's other word for knowledge, epinosis. Epinosis. This one has a sense of personal knowledge. Gnosis, information knowledge. Epinosis, personal knowledge. This is the kind of knowledge of a husband or a wife or a good friend that goes beyond knowing things about them and actually knows them. We have all experienced this in some fashion. If you look around at most of the people even in this room and you know all about them, that's okay. But there should be people here, if you're married, it should be definitely your spouse. There should be others, your good friends and other people here that you have a, a relational knowledge with them, a personal knowledge with them. You know them. You don't know just that they like football. You know that when they go into a 3-4, they get angry. That's like a detail, right? That's getting down. That's Brian. Um, <laughs> you know that they like football. I'm sorry, it's, it's, it's upon us. I just want you all to, to recognize that it's back. Um, you know that when they run the ball on second down, that they're going to get angry, right? Because like, as coach, that's not what you do. Um, you know who they are. You know what makes them tick. You know the things that are deeper about them. You know their, their character, and you know why they are that way. That is a distinctly different thing than just knowing something about them. You may know people in here that get angry sometimes. You know why they get angry? Do you know what, what motivates that? What desires are not being met that pushes them into that kind of anger? That is personal knowledge. This is information. Totally different. Totally different. Now, it's hard to have personal knowledge without information knowledge about them, which we'll talk about next week. But this knowledge of the gospel, of the genuine article, and it making a difference in your real life is centered upon personal knowledge. Knowing God is so momentous that Peter uses the word almost with the meaning of being converted. 
of being converted, if you don't know God personally, you're not a believer, is what he's saying. This is an essential foundation for if we don't know about Christ himself, then it is empty to know about him. If we don't know who he actually is, then you can have a list of all the things that you want about him, but you don't know him. There's a difference. Now, what is fascinating about this and is so hope-filled is that this is a knowledge that you can have no matter your level of intelligence. It doesn't matter if you can read. It doesn't matter if you think that you are stupid. It doesn't matter if you're provably stupid. None of that matters here because, because it is relational. It is relational. Our intellect doesn't matter because ultimately this is a knowledge that God alone gives. This type of hope-filled relationship is a work of God. Know what a difference it makes in real life. Check its results. This relationship with Him will change you. Now, is it helpful to know about Him? Absolutely. Oftentimes in counseling that I do, one of the first things that we do after dealing with like the initial crisis is walk through the attributes of God. Can you know lots about him and not know God? Yes. Is that the common thing? Maybe out in the culture at large, but in the church, we have a lot of people that I think genuinely know God in this way that he's talking about, but not a whole lot about him. And so when you think about the character of your spouse or your best friend or, or whoever it is in your life, and think about all the different things you can list about them, who they are, your intimate level of knowledge of, of, of their character and what drives them. You can list, you can fill a, a book with that information. Can you do the same thing about God? And can you back it up with Scripture? And that often is what is lacking in my experience with people. And so one of the first things that I try to do is help fill that out some. It's easy to trust your spouse the longer you've been with them and the longer you know them because they are fully known to you. It's harder to trust God if you don't fully know Him. But oftentimes our knowledge of Him on knowing His character is pretty limited. Even if it is true, it's still pretty limited. So we want to, to expand on that. We'll talk about that next week. That's one of His chief methods. So, Grace and peace can only come through a personal knowledge of God himself, face-to-face and person-to-person. That genuine personal knowledge of God is guaranteed only if we remain within the authentic gospel. If my wife suddenly starts believing a shift of of a lie in my character and begins to act upon that, our relationship is going to begin to fail. If I... start to believe some twist of character in her that's not true. Someone tells me something about her and I believe them, even though it's a lie, our relationship is going to shift and begin to fail. So long as we remain within the authentic truth of who this person is, will we stay in real authenticity and gospel. 
And finally, we want to know what the, the doctrine that it teaches. So having seen what difference it makes in real life and checking its results, we need to know the doctrine that it teaches. If you want to know that your gospel is the real deal, know the doctrine, check its content. Is it the genuine, here's the key, Christ? Is it the genuine Christ? Peter gives us four extraordinary statements about Jesus as indicators of the purity of our message's content. When you look through this letter, which is going to turn into a sermon in about one verse, um, God the Father kind of falls to the background a little bit more than general for him. But Jesus (laughs) comes raging to the front. Six major statements about Jesus overall. Here, descriptor-wise, we have four very specific ones here. The first one, Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. Savior, another one of these things at the front of a letter that kind of just falls off, just like apostle, right? Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We, We throw out Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, or Messiah, all the time. which which is good and fine, we often lose the gravity again that comes with that term. Savior. Savior of what? (laughs) From what? What is it that Jesus saves us from? Sin. Great. Let's expand that relational knowledge piece a little bit right now, okay? Sin what? Sin the past? Sin the present? Sin the future? We're cleansed of our past sins, he's going to say. We are presently escaping the corruption of the world. And in the future, which is one of the primary aspects of later in the, in the, in the book, is the second coming. The second coming means salvation. The only place to hide will be behind the cross. It is this third sense that we're going to see the most in the, in the letter as we go. But he's Jesus the Savior. Is your... Is your gospel genuine? Is it the real Christ? Is Jesus the Savior? Is he the hero of the story? You say, well, what other gospel am I believing? Are you the hero of your story? You're believing the wrong gospel. If you think that you're the great one, you're believing the wrong gospel. If you believe that you're the most glorious one, you're believing the wrong gospel. Jesus is the hero of the story. He's the Savior. Second claim, that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Peter unequivocally attributes full deity to Jesus. Full deity to Jesus. If you look at our text, find it. <coughs> a servant and apostle of Jesus the Christ, the Savior, to those who have abstained a faith of equal standing of ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there have been some people that kind of argue about that. Well, 
that not necessarily the same. Yes, there are some different relationships in the Godhead that we talk about, which is why in the next verse, he helps clarify. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And so there's carefulness here in recognizing that there is one God, yet three persons, and one Godhead, right? So there's carefulness here, but Peter, Peter handles that. And he gives full deity to Jesus, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, what I think is interesting about being careful here and recognizing deity is just looking at Jesus' response himself. Because the balance was striking at the end of his life on earth when he said, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This is Jesus speaking, right? But he didn't argue with Thomas when Thomas recognizes him as my Lord and my God. Jesus has, has set the tone for what this looks like. So is your faith genuine? Do you know the doctrine it teaches? Is it the genuine Christ? Your Christ is God. Third claim, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Listen, when Peter first dared to breathe the phrase, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he was breaking a wholly new ground in Israel's dealings with God by identifying this man, Jesus, as the fulfillment of God's plan for humankind. Remember, in the Gospels, who, who do the people say that I am? Oh, you're a prophet, you're John the Baptist, you're whoever, whoever. Who do you say that I am? Who, are, who do you, Peter, say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's a Jew saying that you're the Christ of the Old Testament. You are the, the fulfillment of this Messiah that we are looking for. Now, of course, Peter did not fully understand what he was saying himself because Jesus immediately explains that he's got to suffer as the Christ, and Peter rebukes him, thinking that the Christ, the Messiah, should be a glorious king. But this misunderstanding here became the fundamental theme of Peter's message at Pentecost, right? It's the heart of his message at Pentecost to this crowd. Peter says this, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him up from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, with Lord, God, and Messiah. The risen Jesus is the glorious, lordly Christ precisely because he went the way of the cross. And it is that to which Peter and the other apostles are witnesses. Jesus is the Messiah. Peter says in Acts, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Let's talk about Lord. That's the fourth claim. Jesus is the Lord. 
Jesus is the Lord. When you talk, read, say, my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, what do you mean when you say Lord? Is that good church language that you rightfully picked up from being hopefully here? What do you mean by Lord? What do you mean by that? What we need to understand when we, this is beautiful, special, I would firmly place this in the good category. Uh, it, it melts my, my heart, it warms my affections, is this. When we call Jesus Lord, it identifies Jesus as the Hebrew God, Yahweh. It says that Jesus was present all the way through the history of Israel as their covenant Lord. Whenever Christians read that the Lord did such and such, we are to understand that it's Jesus is acting there. Yahweh is Lord, Kyrios. It's, it's, it's all the same meaning. When we read the scriptures, we get to understand that Jesus is, is that God. We know that from Trinitarian speak, right? But it doesn't register with us when we are in Psalm 23. And we see the Lord is my shepherd. And then we get to think of Jesus in John 10 telling us, first of all, I am, which someone else said that in the Old Testament, I am Yahweh, the good shepherd. Jesus is the Lord. He's the covenant Lord from beginning to end. And so when we talk about the content of this gospel, the doctrine it teaches, and it being, being by and through the righteousness of Jesus, we need to recognize that a genuine Christ is our God, our Christ, our Lord, and our Savior. Lord and Savior Jesus Christ means a lot. <laughs> It means a lot. Why is this important? Because we believe lies. We believe lies. Start with the fact that our own hearts are deceitful. We can't trust our own hearts. When we are remade in new life, resurrected from this death and ash heap, United with Christ, united with Him, we get grace and peace because we stand in the righteousness of God, in the righteousness of Jesus. We can be at peace with Him. We can know Him, know who He is, be in personal relationship with with God. If that's not what you have, you don't have the real thing. And so the question is, do you have the genuine article? That song that I mentioned earlier goes on to say this, authentic faith is not merely believing in God, it is believing God. Taking God at His word living in obedience to His revelation, whatever the cost, because you know down deep in your bones that God will always do what He says, that His speaking is His doing. It is an abiding assurance in God and His promises that animates you 
to persevere in your obedience to him. So that's the argument. That's the real Christ. That's the real gospel. That's the genuine article. What do we do with that? We'll talk about next week. But it's important to start with this. Do you have the genuine article? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for clear, unequivocal claims of who you are. Father, that when we see your word proclaimed to us, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we know that it is you who sent your Son to be our righteousness for us, to save us from sin in the past and the present and the future. Father, to know that you walk with us, you were Emmanuel, God, with us. And that, Father, as we saw just a few weeks ago, that in your going, and Jesus is leaving from us, you sent the Spirit to us that he might not just walk among us, but be in us, take up residence in us. Whereas Jesus was only in one place at one time, walking with his disciples, Father, now you dwell in the hearts of all your people that have been bought with your son's blood. Father, let us explore this, to grow in this knowledge that we'll be talking about these next couple weeks, to know who you are fully. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we take communion today, this is a designed representation by Jesus at the last table to show us this covenant, this covenant in his body, in his blood. This covenant Lord of the Old Testament that, that orchestrated that great salvation event from Egypt in the Exodus. That thing that they point back to, and the way that we point to the cross all the time, the Israelites pointed back to the Exodus all the time. Look at what God has done. Look what he did. He did that. Surely he will deliver us now. We say the same thing about the cross. And in that Passover event that led to the Exodus, we pick up this beautiful picture of this new covenant in his blood. This remembrance of this great costly deliverance for us. In a way that we wish that we could see God, and one day we, we have this hope that we will see Him, we get to experience now the taste. We get to taste this covenant. We get to partake of it together. And the way that we are all on the same foot before the cross, that there is no partiality, that God is fair in His dealings with His people. We all share from the same loaf and cup. The pastors don't get a fancier cup or, or wine instead of grape juice and Whatever other kind of bread you could have, we all share from the same thing. There's no different levels. And so as we take communion today, this is your tasting of a covenant from the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one that will wash his apostles' feet. That releases this apostle Peter to this ministry. And so today, as we celebrate communion, we, we partake of that together. That promise, and we're reminded of this relationship because this relational knowledge of God is not something that you acquired on your own. It was given to you.
just as he gave himself for us. So I want to encourage you as you take communion today, if there is a relationship that needs mended, leave your offering at the altar. Go and be reconciled. Then come together and take. If you're not a believer today, we would encourage you to just observe. Watch as the body partakes from the body. As we see what it means to, to gather together and, and embody everything that we have talked about today. If there is unrepentant sin in your own life, I want to encourage you to repent of that now. God is gracious. You don't have to prove yourself. He is good and faithful and just to forgive us of all sins because we stand not in our own actions but on his righteousness. That's how you've come to know him, by his righteousness. Then come and take freely, knowing that there's grace and peace. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for, for your gift, the gift of your body. And Father, today as we take communion, I pray that, that we would be reminded of this covenantal care that you gave us. Father, you've not left us fatherless, but you have adopted us as your own. You sent the Spirit to care for us. And so, Father, today let us be united in that Spirit and partake of this new covenant together. Lord, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.